Hello, and welcome to Wealth Matters, where we discuss the opportunities and challenges of preserving and managing wealth. This show is presented to you by Gaslewitz Frankel, a law firm dedicated to resolving disputes involving your wealth, whether through your will, your trust, your business, or your investments. For news, pictures, and tips, go to our web, new website at gaslewitzfrankel.com or follow us on Twitter at Estate Dispute. Our show's hashtag is Wealth Matters. Your hosts are Robert Port and Adam Gaslowitz, and today we're talking about the benefits of using a corporate fiduciary. And now it's time to introduce our guests. We're pleased to have with us today Karen Havey, Family Wealth Strategist at BNY Mellon, and Tim Sheehan, direct, uh, Senior Director of Business Development at BNY Mellon. And before we get started, uh, Tim, why don't you just uh, give us a little background on what you and uh, Karen do? Well, Robert and Adam, thanks so much for having us this morning. It's always great. I'm a big avid follower of Wealth Matters, and I was excited that we're going to be talking about corporate fiduciaries, which yeah. are close to our home. Uh, part of my role at BNY Mellon is to curate the resources of the firm. You know, we're the oldest fiduciary. We settled and administered the very first trust in the United States when Aaron Burr shot Alexander Hamilton. I, I did not know that. So you've got them in the house today. <laughs> Whose right. who's, who's trust was that, Burr's or Hamilton's? <laughs> it was Hamilton's, and we've got a copy of it. We're, we administered it. Um, does, but, does that come with any tickets to the show? <laughs> unfortunately not. I think the only thing we were able to do is like do a couple of previews here. Alex Horowitz we can get you in touch with, who was a roommate for Lin-Manuel. But uh, beyond uh, that... Uh, we'll talk after the show. That, that's our connection. Uh, so... Part of my role is to make sure that when individuals, families, foundations are looking for a solution for their wealth management needs, coming in, starting in with me, and I curate the resources of the firm. Oftentimes, they're looking for a fiduciary, uh, but they're also looking for other services as well that would include banking um, and investment services, maybe escrow services. And that's my role, just to make sure I work with the family, that they have access to the resources that the firm, so they can make a, a good decision about what's right for their family and their needs. All right. And Karen? Thank you. Um, yes, I work with our clients to help them figure out the, the best plan to actually preserve their wealth and to pass it down to their family in a way that they think is appropriate, um, which can be much more difficult than one might think. And it involves um, a lot of thought, and it's, um, it's not just the technical aspects of it, but it's really getting to know our clients and getting to know their children and making sure that we have a full understanding of what would be in the best interest of everybody and um, to uh, just make sure that the wealth is going to be passed down in a way that's going to benefit the family as opposed to harming it. Okay. So right. let's start uh, sort of very simply. A word we're going to use repeatedly in this show is fiduciary. How about uh, either one of you or both of you tell us what you are, what you do, what it means to be a fiduciary? That's a great question, Robert, and it gets thrown around a lot today. I mean, we've seen the Department of Labor get involved in the investment management business um, recently in talking about the fiduciary standard. But what is it? To your point, I've, I've pulled the definition for you. So if we're looking at a fiduciary, it really is a person, agent, or entity in a position of authority whom the law obligates to act solely on the behalf of another in good faith. It's also the adherence to the highest standards of fiduciary care. Act as a support in making and implementing discretionary decisions. And this is where you help your clients. Are they doing that? And maintain full and accurate records. We had a couple of jokes about this before air. 
um, that uh, a lot of times people don't do that, and it's kind of surprising. But that's your job as a fiduciary, to maintain those. And you provide experience, objectivity, and also deliver confidence and trust. So that's what a fiduciary really is. And in layman's terms, that would be uh, a trustee of a trust, uh, a guardian of somebody, uh, someone who holds a power of attorney perhaps, uh, an executor right. of a will. All those, all those types of roles are fiduciary roles. Correct. All right. With that basis... Let's talk about what uh, what trends you're seeing in, in the uh, world of the modern fiduciary. Well, we like to call it the modern fiduciary, and it's because people have a, a vision of what the fiduciary was. You know, if we go back to the 50s, 60s, and 70s, even the 80s, people had the idea of the bank, and there was the one bank in town, and mom and dad had a relationship with that bank. They might have built their wealth through that bank. And they decided, well, that's going to be the person that's going to be in charge of, you know, my legacy, as Karen kind of described it. And there was a lot of negative connotations. There's a lot of cases that are very public, you know, holding on to concentrations, not diversifying a portfolio, feeling that, you know, I wasn't getting information, kind of going into a black box. So uh, it came uh, as, as a negative and a lot of, you know, big cases, which you all were involved in and helped clients um, address. And people started moving away from that. And we saw a trend going <coughs> away from the larger banks just because of the inability for them to offer flexibility, transparency, um, and candidly be quick enough. Um, and so we started to see individuals go into that role. And we'll talk a little bit about that later. But then now we're starting to see a little bit of people getting away from that because people are starting to realize, well, while that's flattering that you know, mom and dad thought of me or my business partner thinks of me that way. I've just talked to Adam and Robert and they've said that I should be thinking about this, 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 and this, and this, and I've got some exposure here. And do I want to open up myself for that? So we're seeing people saying, thanks, but no thanks. I need some help. Mm -hmm. So we're starting to see people kind of come back to the corporate fiduciary and saying, you know, let's just make sure we pick the right one. Karen? Yes, and another thing that I think has changed a lot over the past um, few decades especially is the evolution of how trust documents are written. If you look at the older trust documents, a lot of times they'll be, you know, half a dozen pages or even a dozen pages. Oh, they're definitely not that anymore. Uh, yeah, and now, exactly, they're, you know, 50, 60, 70 pages, and they encompass just a much wider range of issues and also have a lot more flexibility. And so when you're looking at administering a trust or acting as a trustee, you really just have to understand that you've got to operate within that document. And so it's um, modern trust law has really brought in a lot of flexibility and it creates um, a lot more for trustees to consider. Um, while it creates options, it also makes it much more important to really understand what's in that document because it's easy to miss things, but it's, 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 it's good to have the flexibility so that the family's not just so locked into you know six or twelve pages, and um, the trust can actually grow and change with the family and the laws um, as necessary. So, um, <coughs> tell our listeners some of the reasons you see, and there are certain themes as to why a trust would be appropriate. Uh, for certain types of circumstances, I'm confident you see regularly. Uh, different types of facts and circumstances where a trust would be appropriate and circumstances where it may not be. There might be some other form, uh, a corporate form to follow, perhaps an LLC or a partnership or something. 
I would say uh, the most common thing that we see is asset protection, number one. Um, people are looking to protect their assets. And then number two, quickly behind that, is going to be preparing people for the money uh, in their family, uh, whether it be uh, a spouse that may not have the business acumen or had the exposure to the business. They want to make sure that that person is taken care of. The other thing that keeps people up at night is their children. You know, we'll always second guess every single decision we make for our children, right? Yeah, pretty much, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I hope my kids are not listening. Yeah, I'm, I'm not going to say that on air. <laughs> but, you know, they worry. And, you know, is, is this money that I've made that I've worked really hard for, you know, going to take away the drive uh, for my kids? What can I do? And a trust can be a great vehicle to do that um, and making sure that, you know, people, you know, are prepared for the money. And I'll let Karen kind of comment because she's been involved in a lot of those. I'm, I'm reminded before you comment, Karen, I'm reminded of a, a Warren Buffett quote, which goes something like, I want to leave my kids enough money so they can do something, but not so much that they'll do nothing. Right. Yep. And if you look at others, there, there are other great quotes, too. V the Vanderbilts, I think one of the Vanderbilts has quoted saying that the money ruined them. And, you know, why did my parents leave me with all this money? So it, it's very important to leave it in a, in a structure. And, um, and I think it also goes back to being um, proactive and in involving your children. And you have to figure out what the right way to involve them is. And, um, you know, giving, kind of letting go of the purse strings with some of the money to let them explore and you, and then you can see how they can handle it. But it's really important to just make sure that you bring them in as appropriate. Now, if there's a good reason not to, then that's a different story. But if they're productive, you know, functioning human beings then it's you know it's <laughs> and we all have those right? right right so it's um that i think that's important but um for for having a trust um and uh, you don't want to think of it as just um you know putting a wall around the assets either especially with the modern documents there's there's so many opportunities to bring family members in and involve them as appropriate um but it really does as tim says go back to the asset protection it protects assets from um divorces. It protects assets from bankruptcy, creditors, judgment holders. Um, so you really have to think of it in, in that term, and it's just a way to guard the family's wealth. Um, it's also great for tax planning purposes. Um, I was a tax attorney for um, about 10 years, so that's, that's always a big one. Um, and it's easy to get the tax planning in. Um, and if you, if you do it right and you structure it right and you have it in a jurisdiction, Georgia now, a trust can last for 360 years. So there are portions of that trust that can be sheltered from estate tax for 360 years now. Um, so that's that's another important part, so the, the, the asset protection component as well. And Karen, you've, you've touched upon something that we often see as not happening and leading to the litigation that we're, we're often representing folks in, and that is communication. Mm -hmm. You know, sort of the old school thought, I believe, was you don't talk with your kids about your money and your banker will deal with it or whatever the case may be. And, and we see numerous situations where someone will pass away or something will happen and someone will come into significant wealth and have no idea what's coming, have no idea how to deal with it, manage it, or anything like that. So encouraging families uh, multi-generationally to talk about uh, their assets and their goals and their 
aspirations, well, I think, is very important. Well, the bigger problem is when people think they're coming into a lot of wealth <laughs> when somebody dies, <laughs> no, and right. it turns out it's going to be tied up in trust for their step-parent or whatever for, for many years. Right. Which, uh, which is why they need to know ahead of time yeah. that, that right. that's what's happening. Yeah, yeah. Right. So, so um, before we touch on, uh, get back to the corporate fiduciaries, I mean, m my experience, and, and we've been litigating now for probably close to 30 <coughs> years in this field, uh, my experience is that almost all of our cases involve litigation with a, uh, an individual fiduciary, not a corporate fiduciary. We have very, very few cases that involve corporate fiduciaries. And, but that's, that has always been the trend because I think estate planners tend to, as a, a knee-jerk reaction to what their clients want, name the oldest son or the new wife or whoever as uh, the, the fiduciary. And that leads to a lot of problems that corporate fiduciaries, I think, can, can solve. How, how do you get planners to recognize that that's a better solution? Or, or how do you get your clients to realize that's a better solution than just naming a family member? You know, that's such a good question, Adam, because you're exactly right. Um, you know, we, we offer it as a service, as a resource. We're really good at it. We've been doing it the longest than anybody else in the country. But at the end of the day, people buy from people, people have personal relationships, and when it comes down to thinking about a legacy and who's gonna be taking care of their kids, their business, their family, they're gonna lean to a friend, somebody that they've known and that they trust. So it's always gonna be an individual. What we will counsel them on is, have you talked to the individual? You know, do they know they're going to be asked to serve in this role? Do they understand that? We're happy to have a conversation with them so that they really understand that definition that we opened up the show with, that they're going to be held to that standard and that they're going to be liable to institute that standard in the relationship. And then when you start getting into, well, um, and I haven't, well, you know, that's probably a good time to engage them. And I think once they talk to the people they're thinking about and they realize that maybe that's too much to ask, and that's where, you know, you can bring in a code trustee with the corporate that's a great solution for your listeners because they're doing the heavy lifting on the corporate side so to your point they've got a lot of experience they have deep pockets and resources if they do make a mistake they can fix it right you know so you have got somebody to go back on and th those are important things but at the end of the day that individual is not carrying that burden all on their shoulders so we've also got the skills to to account on a regular basis that everybody knows what's going on there's complete transparency generally when a corporate fiduciaries involved that's right yeah, so that tax returns get done on time that's right and that can be a great solution to kind of marry the fact that you want to deal with somebody that you know you know and and you like but at the same time bring in somebody that can you know is equipped to do the heavy lifting to your yeah. point point. And, and in these days when most families are probably blended families of some sort where you've got a, a second or third spouse you've got children perhaps from different marriages uh, if you're setting up trust to protect you know your surviving spouse um, somebody else other than one of those other kids probably needs to be the the go-between for managing the assets and making the kind of decisions that a trustee needs to make about distributions right what's interesting because you know we'll, we'll share some stories as a conversation but you know i can think of one where and it's really common where it's multi-generational wealth so if we're like you know let's say two generations away from the wealth creator they fall in line with that thinking adam i mean they totally get that even the kids are like no nope, i don't want anybody serving except for a corporate i want somebody completely out of this i don't want my brother doing it exactly <laughs> right. yeah. but it but it's usually that multi-generational um you know person because they're so trained to it and they 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 see you know through other family branches where it didn't work that's fine farm that out you know and and mom and dad don't have the pressure of picking one over the other so so, so what problems do you see 
Well, Karen, I think. <laughs> How much time do you have? Yeah, right? <laughs> um, Karen's going to be finishing out the last half hour of the show. <laughs> <laughs> we have, I have a couple of, of kind of favorite examples. And one thing, if you start um, with what uh, most you know, middle-aged adults are, they have she's minor looking, she's children. looking around the table and that's what she's saying. <laughs> right. Right. <laughs> you have young children and you have you know, large life insurance policies and, and wealth that you would pass to your minor children in trust. Um, and it's very important to decide, one, that who's gonna, who's gonna be the guardian of the children mm-hmm. and who's gonna take care of the millions of dollars that would flow from this life insurance policy if God forbid something happens. And what we see is a lot of times people will name their siblings and the siblings will be the guardian and the keeper of the money. And that has turned into disaster in as many cases as it's actually oh. come to fruition in. Yeah, we've, and, seen, we've seen plenty of those. Yeah, yeah. And, it, and it's unfortunate because, you know, you have an uncle who's in charge of the money and, you know, he has the best interests, you know, at heart, but he doesn't, he didn't have $10 million and he doesn't know how to administer a trust. And now he's got $10 million through this, these kids. and. I've seen it just be lost, you know, because he made a bad investment with a buddy and, you know, it's, you, you just, these people oftentimes do not have the experience, one, to administer a trust, nor do they have the acumen to manage the money that, you know, may flow f- for your minor children. So that's one kind of disaster. And, and so when, when a lot of, you know, sort of thinking of who should be in charge of that, um, the, the minimal cost of a really good corporate trustee is really going to totally be beneficial and probably save the kids assets and really just be a, a good thing well let's just get that uh, that on the table yeah. there is a cost to a corporate fiduciary but there is a cost to an individual fiduciary as well if you Absolutely. name your son or, or or your wife or whatever to be the uh, the trustee either the document provides what fee they'll get or the uh, the law provides it so it's not like it's an either or right okay and my, my view of the cost is that rather than focusing directly on the cost, I think people ought to think of it as I do in terms of, um, you know, the fees I pay for money management. I think of it as an insurance premium. It's the premium I pay to avoid the type of risks you're talking about, that you've got a, a son or daughter who may not be able to manage the money correctly or an uncle or even a, even a business associate. You know, lots of people we see name their CPA, an attorney who may not know anything about this. And I right. view those costs as something, you know, candidly, no one likes to pay them. But if you think about it in terms of risk management, I think it makes eminent sense. Absolutely. And, and y- there are many different cost structures for corporate trustees. Um, and there are many different cost structures for individual trustees, as you mentioned, especially if you have a professional. So it's very important to really check out how those costs are going to play out. And, um, you know, we, we d- BNY Mellon does it very efficiently. It's, 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 um, it can be a, as low as a tenth of a basis point, which is, is kind of de minimis when you look at all the things that are happening. Um, and, but you can get into other situations where you have layered fees, or if you have independent individual trustees, then you're paying them sometimes up to you know 3%. And so there can be an enormous range of cost. So in, when you're considering a corporate trustee, that's something else that you need to factor in 
and um, make sure that it's understood. And especially if it's a complex relationship, you want to make sure that the beneficiaries of the trust understand it as well. Um, you need to be as transparent as possible to make sure to avoid conflict. Um, right. Well, communication and transparency. <laughs> right. You're listening to Wealth Matters, the radio show where we discuss the opportunities and challenges of preserving and managing your wealth. We're your hosts, Robert Port and Adam Gaslowitz from the fiduciary litigation firm of Gaslowitz Frankel. We're talking today with uh, Karen Havey, family wealth strategist at BNY Mellon, and Tim Sheehan, senior director of business development at BNY Mellon. <coughs> um, we're talking today about the benefits of using a corporate fiduciary. All right, so corporate fiduciaries. <laughs> we, um, we have been encouraging them for as long as I can remember. In, in speeches I give, I've, I've always talked about the benefits of that. Um, one of the one of the issues that comes up is um, how you parse fees with regard to corporate fiduciaries. You know, mm -hmm. uh, uh, there's been a trend lately in sort of segregating and breaking out the fees uh, for different types of services. So it's not just a flat fee for one thing or another. How how is that working today? Do you well, I can't speak to other corporate fiduciaries, sure. but what I can tell your listeners is make sure you understand what you're paying, right? You know, I would tell my children growing up, you know, everybody deserves to get paid. We just want to know how everybody's paid so we can make the decision, right? And I'm sure that's something you've, you know, counseled clients over the years that probably couldn't see, you know, where the, the fees were and Karen's point about layer of fees. Really understand what you're paying for because I agree with you, Robert, you know, I'm, you know, glad to pay a fee as long as I'm getting that sense of protection, that assurance that this is something that's going to, you know, take risk out of the road or soften the ride for me going forward. So from our perspective at BNY Mellon, we separate it, and it is a separate line item if we're serving as a corporate fiduciary. To Karen's point, you know, over $10 million, it drops to a tenth of a percent. So it is de minimis, um, and the client sees that, and they also see the amount of work that we're doing for that. Um, and I would just, is your, if you're going to be looking at a corporate fiduciary, cost efficiency is usually the reason you're bringing in a corporate fiduciary because of the scale that they have, the experience they have. They can do that over a, a broader base of clients. So they can probably the, the best value choice for you, but make certain that they're breaking it out and you do understand it. Um, and to your point, if they're working with an individual, make sure they understand under the, you know, the, the state that they're in, the maximum, because I believe in Georgia's, Karen, I think it's maybe up to, what, 3%, and you all would know? Uh, it depends on whether you're a corporate or an individual. With, That's um, right. Yeah, with corporations, it's um, usually a published fee schedule. Right. And, and most of the banks have those. With individuals, it is uh, a percentage of the trust each mm -hmm. year. Um, so it just depends. So we just, you know, we just want to know as consumers, you know, what that is, and we want to be able to see that clearly on the statements. So that would be the the most important because if you're going to hire a corporate, probably cost efficiency is one of the reasons you're you're moving towards um, that direction. The other tip that I would tell your listeners is ask, and I hear Karen mention this all the time in meetings with prospective families, where's the trust going to be administered? And getting back to your first question, Adam, what trends are we seeing? We're seeing trends with corporate that are centralizing and consolidating the services of trust. Now, is that a bad thing? No. I mean, it helps lower costs. But what's the client experience like? I don't know. You know, we do it differently. It's handled locally through our regional offices. So Karen, in her role, is one of 12 wealth strategists uh, who are attorneys around the country that serve and support our fiduciary relationship. So she's in on the front end. She's talking to you as you're considering, you know, is a corporate trustee right for me? 
is BNY Mellon corporate trustee right for me? So she's evaluating that relationship up front and she's communicating to you how it would be administered, how you'd be supported, and you're meeting your team that is actually going to be your frontline point of contact. We're seeing in other corporates that that's going more to a centralized model, whether it be a call center support, not saying that that's wrong, but at the same time, um, you know, the client needs to be aware of that. So in addition to fees is where is the trust going to be administered? Who's going to be my contact person? And, and did you say that uh, you thought a lot of corporate fiduciaries were getting out of this line of work? Yes, that's that's a, that's what we are seeing. There's a trend for, especially in the brokerage model, for them to outsource it or for it to be kind of in the separate separated from the investment management services. Um, BNY Mellon is um, we operate as a fiduciary for our clients, um, and so and there are other firms that do that as well. Um, and our model is is different. We're leaning in to the fiduciary um, services model, and we are you know trying to grow that business and in doing that the first step is to make sure we have a, a really good strong relationship with our clients and get to know the family so that we can then administer the trust through multiple generations as the wealth creator intended for that to be um, to, the, to, to be done um, and there so there, there are models there are models where you can have um, you know the corporate fiduciary that's managing the money and that has the just um, the corporate trust department that kind of coincides with that and everybody works together and you're sitting you know next door to each other um, that's more of a regional approach then you also have ones that will manage the money and have a more centralized trust department so it's almost like a separate can be kind of a separate function within the same organization um, there's others that are completely out of the business and they will have partners um, that's where you start looking at two different layers of fees because you've got you know your investment management fees and then you've got another corporate trustee fee from a diff totally different company and that can that can you know get more expensive um, and so those are just the sorts of things that you have to take into consideration in determining what's the right corporate trustee for you and many people have brokers that they have worked with for years and they just want the family to continue with them and so they need to look for you know the solution that's a corporate trustee that can pair well with that brokerage firm yeah. so it's just important to understand the relationships and the options yeah there are some some companies like uh, Cumberland Trust where, where all they do is the trust services and the sure. so you can leave your assets with whatever asset manager you've had during your lifetime uh, after your death and they can be part of the solution along with a corporate fiduciary that just handles the trust services, makes the uh, the decisions about discretionary distributions, decides whether your kid gets a new car or not, you know, all, all those things. Or, right. or deals with kind of, you know, special needs issues and addiction issues that are coming up a lot in trust. Right. And those, and those um, types of companies can, you know, they may have more flexibility than a, a, a large corporate as well. Let me, let me ask a little bit about the assets that you manage, because generally when people talk about assets, and we've used the phrase money or assets, people are thinking stocks, bonds, liquid assets. Can you talk a little bit about uh, whether and how you deal with unique or, or um, you know, sort of non-diversified kind of assets? We see lots of trusts that end up owning businesses mm -hmm. or, or parts of businesses. Or, or owning nothing but land. Right. Thousands, right. Of, acres thousands of, of acres of land and no liquidity at all. Sure. So we encourage your listeners to give us a call and <laughs> let's see, you know, how that, how the, how it's structured, what's ownership. We certainly have a closely held assets group. 
that we partner with at BNY Mellon inside of BNY Mellon. Um, we certainly have a real estate group, so we can work on that. Um, again, since we administer it locally through Karen and her fiduciary team here in Atlanta, we want to make sure that it's something that we're going to be able to add value to. If mm. it's completely 100% of business and there's somebody that's operating that business, um, you know, we've been brought into those. We have to lean heavily on the people that are in the business, but maybe it's better solved in some other way. But, Karen? You, but, you, okay. but, you, don't, but you don't want to be managing a business inside of a trust. Uh, we... We would not. I mean, that's that comes, I think, to Robert mentioned earlier, what sorts of structures do you put in place within a trust? Mm -hmm. So is that an LLC um, or a partnership or you know, corporation? Um, when you have real estate, for instance, if it, you know, then or if you have an operating business, of course, I, th I think that when you have an operating business, that's when you really need to you can have a corporate to help, especially on the administrative side of things. Um, but you of course, a corporate is probably never going to be the idea, and I, I shouldn't probably say never, but it's probably not going to be the ideal um, thing for managing a family business. So you're going to have to have a business succession plan in place. Then in, if you want the business to continue on, you're going to have to have people in there to manage it. Um, Th now, are, this is one of the things that, that people ought to talk about in advance with whoever's going to be managing the estate, right? Absolutely. If there's, if there's a business in, in, in the estate or if there's you know a lot of timberland that has to be managed or farmland, I mean, you need to know about it in advance, and some kind of plan needs to be encouraged before someone yes, dies, right? absolutely. Wow, that is such a great point, Adam. I cannot tell you how many people I will meet, and they will say, hey, I've named you in the documents. <laughs> I'm not going to tell you what's in the estate, but <laughs> you're, <laughs> surprise. You know, you're 34. I guess uh, in 50 years, somebody <laughs> in my office will get a call. <laughs> and that's such a good point, Adam, because tell people, if you're going to you know, seek out a corporate fiduciary, listen, our costs and our fees don't start until we actually serve. So we're getting named every day, all day, in hundreds of documents we don't see until we're acted, asked to serve. But you bring up a great point, Adam. Make sure you're communicating that to a potential corporate because let's have that conversation with you. Well, this is a going business interest. Who are we going to be working with? I can think of one um, that Karen and I worked with. It was a going business, and we had to rely on key people um, you know, to operate this business. One, we were able to facilitate a sale. We were able to introduce banking capabilities to the family. We were able to introduce leverage and loans to bridge to get to a successful sale. Those were all things that you know, candidly, had we known in advance and we were able to get there, but we were scrambling, right? Because, you know, life happens. So by all means, Adam, exactly. If you're, if you're thinking about a corporate fiduciary, have a conversation. It doesn't cost you anything. Just, you know, well, this, seems, this seems sort of elemental, but you can, and I know you don't like to do so, but even though you're named, you can decline the invitation that's a great right. point and robert i'm not sure i'm not sure people realize that they're not just you know sort of like a federal judge's appointment it's right. a lifetime appointment whether you want it or not you can decline if they've invited you to a party you don't care to participate in that is a great point for all the listeners to really make sure they understand because they'll you know people say oh i'm i've named you in our documents it's like well i don't know if we'll serve <laughs> 
<laughs> but thanks. You may, you, you may not RSVP as they had intended. How, how, how often do you get involved uh, in the uh, the planning aspects with your clients? So, so you know that at some point you're going to be named as a, as a corporate fiduciary, but at the moment you're simply the uh, asset manager and uh, and financial advisor for the client. Do you do you work with clients about? You know how to set up their state, how to restructure things if they know that there are different milestones coming. Day one, yeah. You know, the the bank in New York, Mellon name is you know an iconic name in our industry, right? You know we've been around since the beginning, as we talked earlier. So people think of us as multi generational wealth and and you know Forbes four hundred type of clients, and of course those are our types of clients, but the majority, the absolute majority of our business is first generation wealth and gives me a lot of personal joy because we get a chance to sit down with that wealth creator and that's 99% of our business and our conversations and they've done nothing because they have had been heads down they have They're worked busy in making the business the money. and they've right. made the money yeah. to your point and then when you start talking to them the first thing we do is where's your estate plan at and it may be nowhere it may be nothing and that's very rewarding. Karen's in on that meeting and has a conversation and starts mapping that out for them and really starts to kind of describe what they can do. Right. Um, as Tim mentioned, the wealth strategists um, are available for all of our clients. So that's another important thing for people to consider when they're choosing a wealth manager because what, you know, what are the resources? So as part of our client's relationship, they have access to um, a wealth strategist like me and um, it's not a separate line of service, and we're not we're not selling them a plan. Um, but we, we really take a softer side approach with our clients and sit down and really kind of work through the family issues. We walk them through what they have. We make sure they understand it. A lot of people come in, and they don't have any planning in place. So we'll help them, you know, kind of figure out what they want. And then we pass it off to the attorneys. And I say, I mean, pass it off to the attorneys to do the hard work. Um, I don't do any drafting anymore and um and i don't miss it either so, um, i hear that a lot yeah we, I, um, I, I used to be an estate planning attorney <laughs> 30 years ago and i don't think i missed um, that either yeah, do, do you, so, so do you um do you, you must work with clients then on long-range planning it's like you yes know, and we do is uh, i'll say one, one thing that i think is important is um we, i had this conversation this question come up yesterday in a meeting with um, a, a client, but it was um, we're they're talking about choosing a corporate trustee and well, should we and let the corporate trustee look at the documents before you know they're finalized? And the oh. answer is yes, and it's not because um, on our end we don't have anything that we have to have in the document. But, but there I, are things you'd like to see in the document. There may be, um, but I think just from the most fundamental perspective, it's make sure that, and this is a, a real problem that I see very consistently, make sure that the document says what it needs to say for your intent to be carried out. There's distribution language, and a lot of it's standard, and, um, you know, a corporate fiduciary has very, you know, they, they have to govern they, they govern within the document. They are, they're limited to the document. There's no flexibility in that. And so you really need to understand how those terms are going to be administered by a corporate trustee. And we work very closely with our clients to make sure that they that their family is going to be taken care of the way that they want, it to, want them to be taken care of. And sometimes that means going past just the typical health maintenance education support standards in the document. Which has a lot of flexibility in it, I mean, or certainly it a lot of discretion in it. It does. Um, but it also, as a corporate, you know, for instance, if that's what you're limited to, a lot of that will, a lot of times you'll have that standard and then you'll say, 
in accordance with their custom custom standard of living. So corporate's going to you know sit down at the beginning of the year and say, okay, well let's make a budget, and what's your custom standard of living? And if they're accustomed to living at a hundred thousand dollars a year, then the corporate's going to be hard pressed to give them a five hundred thousand dollar a year budget, because the corporate also has a fiduciary duty to remainder beneficiaries, and you know so there's and there's all kinds of standard lines that can just that go into the trust, and sometimes um, if you have to take into account their um, other assets, then you've got to ask beneficiaries for tax returns, and so beneficiaries get they get they get very angry about that, and especially if you've set up yes. a trust for a spouse, you know, a surviving spouse, then it's so it's it's very important if you're naming a corporate trustee to go over the distribution terms of the document and to make sure that it says what it needs to say for your beneficiaries to get distributions in the manner in which you want them what to you're do. really What you're really speaking to is eliminating any risk of ambiguity down the road. Right. Because all of the points you just raised are things that we often end up debating in our cases, which if someone had looked at this ahead of time, the drafter and then the person who's going to implement it, and said, well, what does this mean? Maybe this could be clear. It'll eliminate that type of ambiguity for the benefit of your client. Yeah, or at least it, you know, anybody can make an argument, right? So you can't always eliminate the ambiguity, but at least you can, you know, try to get start off in a good place. Well, right. We also <laughs> see a, we see a lot of situations where where the standard of living that the, that the family um, was was. Uh, uh, dealing with was was a much lower standard while the uh, the the earner was alive but they didn't like it you know they were they were living way way below their means because the patriarch was was a cheapskate that's yeah. how he got all that right. money that's yeah. what got exactly. but, but after he's gone people want people want to finally enjoy the spend, right. of spend someone their else's money yeah, well, they want to they enjoy it and uh, and that that also creates some conflicts like you know we don't want to live that lifestyle anymore we want to live a lifestyle that's more more uh, reflective of the wealth we have not um, not the saving uh, uh, environment we lived in sure is that something you try and talk about it in advance mm -hmm. you talk about it with with the uh settler of these trusts and say you know how yeah. how, how how generous do you want us to be going right. forward and you know but there's one you know you built the two hundred and fifty thousand dollar fountain at your home that's going to have to be maintained <laughs> we get right. ice storms here <laughs> right, so right. we can't really make that on 60 grand a year out of the trust yeah, yeah. <laughs> right yeah it's I, I think that's a hard i mean that's that's the that's the difficult part of this. It's the, the personalities that come into play. And so a lot of the people that we work with that have that a reaction, if, if they come into, if they've been a business owner and they all of a sudden come into 50 or $100 million um, and they've lived modestly up to that point, um, it takes a long time for them to become comfortable with the wealth. And we mm -hmm. have many clients in this, in this um you know, area where they, we work with them as their wealth grows and or when they've had a big liquidity event, and it just it takes a long time for them to get used to it. So you kind of introduce the concepts, you know, slowly, and the more comfortable they become with the wealth, then you know maybe the more lenient they would want their trust to be. Um, in in the situation that you're talk that you mentioned specifically with a patriarch that's you know doesn't like to spend money, is very frugal, and wants everything locked up. 
Um, I think that that creates one of the most difficult and probably a lot of business for you all because and it, it really can, especially, um, you know, one of the worst situations I saw was the patriarch just like that that left um, a very small publicly traded business and other privately held businesses to his three kids. And they just, it was a disaster. Um, you know, it was tied up in these trusts that made no sense and the kids had you know, different vote, they were arguing about who had voting rights, and I mean, there were, there were lawsuits in at least three states, and, you know, a I lo- mean, a lawyer's dream, yeah, yeah. Music, talk, music to our yeah, ears, talk, happy holidays, yeah, but you talk about, I but mean, the, but these are all problems that are, that are avoidable if, yeah. if there's enough discussion right. going, going into this, right, well, I, I don't know if they're completely avoidable, but well, when I hear stories right. like that, what I think of is, and, and this is actually what interests me about this practice and what you do is I'm always interested in how people deal with money, how they think about money, what they understand it can accomplish or do for them or not do for them, whether they want to be philanthropic and things like that. And, and the tensions that Adam's question suggested uh, you know, reveal that completely because you have someone who's self-made, very frugal, and they may have, you know, their next generations who are just spendthrifts. And mm-hmm. it, it reminds me of that phrase, what is it, shirt sleeves to shirt sleeves in three generations. Three generations. Right. And maybe for our listeners, explain what that means. And, and I think it's uh, in eight different languages. Yeah, I think so rice, rice patty to rice right, patty. Right, exactly. <laughs> but it really does mean that the wealth creator makes it, and they've worked hard, they've lived frugally, they haven't spent it. And they've had a dream for their next generation, and that next generation would be going to college and you know getting a PhD and you know being something that they never had the opportunity or felt like they had to do, and so they had the resource to be able to do that. But there's no education, there's no communication, which both you know Adam and Robert have talked to us about, you know, and the importance of that with our families. And then the third generation comes, and there's certainly a lot of wealth at that point. But there's no work ethic. There's no lead by example. There's been no communication. There's been no, this is what we do. This and is no training on how to preserve the wealth. So by the third generation, it's generally it's gone. gone. Yeah. And we get asked all the time, how much should I tell the, the kids about? And the answer is, how much have you prepared them for? That's a big problem. Yes. All right, so as, as we wind down the show, unless you've got something... <laughs> you, you let's see. Let's see where you're going <laughs> to go with I, this. I, I was just going to ask for uh, maybe a, a success story or two from you guys about you read pro- my mind. Pro- problems that came through the door that uh, that that you magically solved. Well, I, I think um, maybe not Karen, magically, but but Karen can add to this. But one that we feel like we can add a tremendous amount of value is, you know, we're we're kind of a resource for you. You know, we're there working for you as your family, helping you kind of manage your entire balance sheet, even things that we don't manage directly, making sure that you achieve your objectives, you know, managing things, that balance sheet, to get the best possible outcome that you can. And maybe a corporate trustee is not right right now, but it's yeah. nice <coughs> to know that that resource is there for you. Or maybe it's just a training, and maybe it's taking an individual like a, a family member, a child, and you want to name them as a trustee, and then being able to sit side by side with them and tell them, what their roles and responsibilities are going to be. That's really kind of cool. We're not even serving in that role, but we're training, and we're showing them what they have to do. And I think Karen um, will talk a little bit about writing out a trust abstract. Trust, I'm not an attorney. I'm with three attorneys this morning on this show, and it's 
I mean, it's like Chinese. I mean, these <laughs> things are really, really big. And we rely on you to tell us what's in them. But sometimes just having somebody like a corporate that maybe not even serving and kind of describe the trust abstract. Right. And, you know, we have so many people that walk in the door and they're just they have so much anxiety about their wealth and about how it's going to pass to the children and who's going to take care of it and um, really just sitting with clients and providing the options and ensuring them that it will be okay and it's a combination of getting a document in place or documents in place that they're comfortable with and making sure that the appropriate people um, are named and and if they want a corporate trustee or we think it's right um, then we will walk through the process with them, walk through the document, and make sure that it's set up correctly. And, um, and we always encourage people to have a way to remove a corporate trustee in their Good documents. Point. You don't want to, we don't, we wouldn't want to be locked into a relationship. We don't want, you know, the, the beneficiaries to be locked into a relationship that they're not comfortable with. So it's really getting the people comfortable and then also helping them to bring the, f the family in as appropriate. And even starting as, I mean, we have children as young as, you know, 13 come into the office for a half day, you know, kind of financial camp. And we, you know, talk about wow. stocks and bonds and bank accounts and philanthropy. And it's really fun, but it's just introducing concepts. You should, you should have that in all middle schools. <laughs> right. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, but it's those are those are the success stories because, you know, they I see the clients they come in and they really are anxious and it and it takes a long time. I mean, you know, I uh, for especially for the big projects. I mean, it, it's a good year that we we really work through the progression of it. But at the end of it, they they just they have relief, and I think those that happens um, numerous times a year for us. We're lucky we have um, great clients that we work with, and it's it's really good at the end of the at the end of the year of planning to see them with some relief. All right, so before we close, uh, why don't I get each of you to, to tell our listeners how they could contact you, you know, uh, email addresses, website, whatever, whatever contact information you find appropriate. If you can't find me, I'm not doing my job, <laughs> but I'm at timothy.sheehan at bnymellon.com. I'm on Instagram at timothy underscore sheehan. And I don't do Twitter, but we do have a Twitter account. It's TES underscore Roman numeral 7. That's V11. And my phone number is 404-664-8182. Karen? Yes, it's karen.havey at bnymellon.com. And mine is my phone number is 678-538-2061. Thank you. As we are wrapping up our show, I want to thank everyone for listening to Wealth Matters, where we discuss the opportunities and challenges of preserving and managing wealth. For more information about Gaslitz Frankel, please go to our website at gaslitzfrankel.com. And remember to follow us on Twitter at A State Dispute and use our show's hashtag Wealth Matters. Our guests today were Karen Havey, Family Wealth Strategist, BNY Mellon, and Tim Sheehan, Senior Director of Business Development, BNY Mellon. Please join us every fourth Wednesday of the month at 8.30 a.m. here at Wealth Matters on Business Radio X. Mm -hmm.